Hello, and welcome to the American Writers Museum podcast, where we bring the power of the written word straight to your ears. Last week, we featured a conversation between poets Ross Gay and Eve L. Ewing. This week, booklist editor Donna Seaman chats with Tiari Jones, the author of An American Marriage, which was a selection for Oprah's book club. We hope you enjoy entering the mind of a writer. We are thrilled tonight to welcome Tayari Jones, whose novel, An American Marriage, was called Wise and Compassionate and Beautifully Written by the New York Times. This is her fourth novel, and it was chosen as Oprah's book club selection in January. Her writing has appeared in House, The Believer, The New York Times, and Kalalo. She's received the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, Lifetime Achievement Award in Fine Arts from the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, the United States Artist Fellowship and NEA Fellowship, and the Radcliffe Institute Bunting Fellowship. She teaches creative writing at Emory University. And we're also pleased to welcome Donna Seaman from the Adults Book Editor at Booklist, who is one of the content editors and selectors of the museum content that you see before you today. Um, so Donna has been a huge partner with the institution, um, and she is deeply involved in helping us get off the ground. So she is going to be interviewing Tayari following a short reading. So please welcome Tayari Jones and Donna Seaman. to see everyone. I really appreciate you coming out. I really do. Thank you so much. And thank you, Donna. Oh, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. So nice to, I have never met Donna in real life, but I've always read her reviews in Booklist, and Booklist is one of the few publications that has reviewed every one of my books. That's right. We know a good writer when we find one. Thank you. Well, this is so exciting. Um, Tiara, you're going to read first from your newest book, An American Marriage. This is my copy, but I'll loan it to you for a moment. (laughs) I'll just read. um, I don't have my glasses. It'll be all right, though. It'll be okay. Oh, really? Could you? Yeah, I don't have my glasses. I, this glasses to read thing is new to me. Um, well, if it's new, then they'll probably be stronger. I've discovered it lately. They've been making the writing in books smaller and smaller. <laughs> if this doesn't go the way we want it to, Roy said the day before his trial, I don't want you to wait for me. Keep making your art and doing all the things you need to do. This is going to work out, I promise. You didn't do it. I'm looking at so much time, he said. I can't ask you to throw your life away from me. His words and his eyes were speaking two different languages, like someone saying no while nodding his head yes. No one's going to throw anything away, I said. I had faith in those days. I believed in things. But what I now know is this. They didn't believe me. Twelve people and not one of them took me at my word. There, in front of the room, I explained that Roy couldn't have raped the woman in room 206 because we had been together. I told them about the magic fingers that wouldn't work, about the movie that played on the snowy television. The prosecutor asked me what we had been fighting about. 
Rattled, I looked to Roy and to both our mothers. Banks objected, so I didn't have to answer, but the pause made it appear that I was concealing something rotten at the pit of our very young marriage. Even before I stepped down from the witness stand, I knew that I had failed him. Maybe I wasn't appealing enough, not dramatic enough, too, not from around here. Who knows? Uncle Banks, coaching me, had said, now is not the time to be articulate. Now is the time to give it up, all filter. Sorry, no filter, all heart. No matter what you're asked, what you want the jury to see is why you married him. I tried, but I didn't know how to be anything other than well-spoken in front of strangers. I wish I could have brought a selection of my art, the Man Moving series, all images of Roy. I would say, this is who he is to me. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he gentle? But all I had were words which are light and flimsy as air. As I took my seat, not even the black lady juror would look at me. It turns out that I watch too much television. I was expecting a scientist to come and testify about DNA. I was waiting for a pair of handsome detectives to burst into the courtroom at the last minute, whispering something urgent. Everyone would see that this was a big mistake, a major misunderstanding. We would all be shaken but appeased. I fully believed that I would leave the courtroom with my husband beside me. Secure in our home, we would tell people how no black man is really safe in America. 12 years is what they gave him. We would be 43 years old when he was released. I couldn't even imagine myself at such an age. Roy understood that 12 years was an eternity because he sobbed right there at the defendant's table. His knees gave way and he fell into his chair. The judge paused and demanded that Roy bear this news on his feet. He stood again and cried, not like a baby, but in a way that only a grown man can cry, from the bottom of his feet up through his torso and finally through his mouth. When a man wails like that, you know it's all the tears he was never allowed to shed. As Roy howled, my fingers kept worrying a rough patch of skin beneath my chin, a souvenir of scar tissue. When they did what I remember as kicking in the door, what everyone else remembers as opening it with the key, after it was open, however it was open, we were both pulled from the bed. They dragged Roy into the parking lot and I followed, lunging for him, wearing nothing but a white slip. Somebody pushed me to the ground and my chin hit the pavement. My slip rode up, showing everything to everyone, and my tooth sank into the soft skin of my bottom lip. Roy was on the asphalt beside me, barely beyond my grasp, speaking words that didn't reach my ears. I don't know how long we lay there, parallel like burial plots, husband, wife, but God has brought together that no man tear asunder. Thank you so much. So you get a sense of the power of the voice. That's Celestial, one of the characters. But I'd like to begin by talking about the distinctive voices in this novel. Uh, how did you craft each one? And how did you make them, um, we both get their thoughts, as in that case. We hear them speak, and they write letters. Well, I started writing this novel. I went to, I had a fellowship. I went to Harvard for a year to research 
um, in mass incarceration because I wanted to write a novel. I had written other novels before, but they were really me sorting out my own emotional landscape. And I felt that it was time for me to turn my eye, you know, more outward instead of looking inward. I think I came to writing with this sense of like, you can use your writing to heal yourself and just writing, writing just in and of itself is a defiant act. And that, that comforted me for a while. But once I hit 40, I was thinking, now it's time to write about somebody else, something else, to do more work. So I went to Harvard to do this research on incarceration. And I found out all these terrible statistics, um, like the US, is 5% of the world's population, but we have 25% of its prisoners. One in 28 kids in the US has a parent in prison. Like, it's a huge, the prison population has risen um, 300% in 30 years, no, 500% in 30 years. So I was learning all this, but I didn't have voices in my head. I didn't have characters talking to me. I had problems keeping me up at night, but not characters talking to me. And for me to write a novel, I have to have a story. But because, you know, I'm a writer, not an activist. But I feel like when you say I'm a writer, not an activist, it sounds like you're saying you don't care. But it's just like that's not the way that I can use writing to make a point. And so I went home to Atlanta and I was in the mall. And I heard a couple arguing. And I heard the woman say, Roy, you know you wouldn't have waited on me for seven years. And I looked at him, I looked at her, and I said, she's right. He would not have waited on her for seven years. <laughs> but then he turned back to her and said, I don't know what you're talking about. This wouldn't have happened to you in the first place. And I thought, you know, that's probably right. It wouldn't have happened to her in the first place. <laughs> and when I feel that I have two characters that both have a point, then I know that I can write a story. And that's how I came to write a story about a young couple separated from his incarceration and what happens when he gets home. And that's how I came to decide to use those voices. Uh, such a powerful story and just shows you how writers, your antenna are always up, you're always open to experience. So instead of writing directly about prison, you take this new, they're newlyweds, really, they're very young. They've only been married 18 months. As she says, her daddy was still paying for the wedding when it happened. And, and they're facing this terrible separation. And the next section in the book is all letters between the two of them. And it's an incredibly poignant approach. And you watch the changes, the letters get shorter and shorter. What they have to say to each other gets tougher and tougher. So it's really um, you know, almost like a lab experiment on a marriage, what, what happens when you can't be together and, and soothe each other in person. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about writing those letters and you know, that sort of epistolatory novel form. Well I, really, well, I write letters in real life. I write lots of letters. I enjoy it. But when I was thinking about this couple, I felt like letters was a perfect way to show, like he even says, he's looking at the paper and pen, and he says, I'm looking at this pen thinking, this is all I have to be a husband with. And so the small piece of paper shows just how small of a canvas they have, literally, to try and be a couple. And also, when you read a novel, you are experiencing vicariously what the characters experience. And prison is brutality, and I did not want you as a reader to have to experience brutality. I didn't want me as a writer to have to experience brutality. But I also wanted to explain the deprivation that 
he felt while he was in prison. And I felt that letters was a good way because we only know the things he would tell her. So he would shield her from some of the more disturbing details, yet you can still tell what he was going through. Yeah, it's really powerful. And um, sort of an aside to this, Terry just had an uh, op-ed in the New York Times last week. It's the 100th anniversary of Nelson Mandela's birth. There's a new collection out, The Prison Letters. And what a profound parallel between your novel and that book. When I read Mandela's letters, you know, we think of Nelson Mandela as all of, all of the heroic things he did. But when we read the letters, we also get to see him as a person, as a man separated from his family. Prison is family separation. And it's happening on our border, but it's also happening right in our cities. Every person in prison is separated from your loved ones. And when you are taken from your loved ones, you're taken away from the relationships that make you who you are. It necessarily robs you of some of your personality, some of the way you understand yourself. But with Mandela's letters too, I was struck by the way his wife existed in his head to keep him going. Like he kept saying, writing things like, I always think of you as the girl I love. But you know, so many things were happening to her life. You know, she was fighting for the ANC and she was growing older. She's almost 50. She's, she is 50 when he's released, but he's writing her letter saying, I still remember you as a girl because that's what kept him going. The idea of her was as important as the person that she was. And I think that's what happens to Roy and Celestial too. Like Roy is in prison and the idea of his wife is what he keeps thinking about at night, not so much the person of her. And it's so hard to live up to someone's imaginary picture of you. Yes, that's really the profound exchange. And I was really fascinated. Uh, Celestial's an artist, and you have her making dolls. And these are very powerful, often kind of disturbing dolls. I wonder if you could talk about where the idea for that artwork came from. Well, I wanted, definitely want to write about a woman, a black woman who is an artist. I don't, haven't seen very many depictions of black women artists in literature and film. So I wanted, and you know, almost everybody I know is an artist. So it seems to me like such a hole in the depiction that there are no artists. So I wanted to write about it. I didn't want to make her a writer because I think that gets weird when writers write about writers. And also, writers are boring to read about because writing doesn't, it doesn't have any action. Writing looks like this. That's why there are not that many movies about writers. There's nothing to watch them do. But I had the idea to make her a doll maker because I have a friend who is an incredible doll maker. And I would watch her make dolls, like she would wear magnifying glasses and just sew all these little beads on them. And dolls are such a perfect metaphor too for women's art because it is art. She spends years sometimes making the dolls, but people regard them as toys for girls, like some girl stuff and folk art. And so she's also struggling for legitimacy, but also it's an accessible art form. Like as she says, she makes these dolls and children can play with them. So I think all artists walk that line between you want people to enjoy your art, but they treat you like if too many people enjoy it, it can't be real, you know, back and forth. And also all the issues about children in the story, the dolls work in that way too. Yes, they're very profound. They really resonate in the story. You know, marriage is in the title of your book, and we see examples of other marriages. And um, Celestial and Roy both look to their parents who have 
their suffering and their secrets too, to try and understand what marriage is about as they try and figure out what, what to do in the future. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the generational differences you, you cover very subtly in the novel. Well, I think that our parents' courtship story is our first exposure to propaganda. Like, <laughs> that story is always presented to you to teach you a lesson of some type. Like, my parents' courtship story is that they met in 1962 at an NAACP meeting at the University of Illinois where they were some of the first black students. You see, so they value education, civil rights, respectable romance, you know? <laughs> and that's a story always told to me that, you know, they met, my mother made a point, my father disagreed, she got mad, she walked out. He didn't follow her, she went back in, she walked out. <laughs> He didn't follow her. She went back in, she walked out, he followed her, then she started walking faster, you know, and then they get married. So that's, <laughs> and that's the way that I, you know, that was their lesson to me. But a few years ago, last time I was on tour, I met another couple that met at that same NAACP meeting. And the way they tell the story, <laughs> is that my dad and this other guy, they called the NAACP meeting as a way to get the phone numbers and contact information for, for all the sisters on campus. But that this couple, so like they, so this other couple tells it like the man had this scheme to meet all these women, but he laid eyes on the one who was the one and therefore abandon his plan to call everyone else. So you see, so the message that they're sending is like, it doesn't matter what your intentions are, when you meet the one, you'll start to act right. You see, so that's, that's their propaganda story. So I was looking to the characters in the book, how they look to their parents' romance, to, but they are all looking at their parents' romances, not as propaganda, but as the truth. Like they haven't learned yet that it's a little bit of scam in the way your parents explain things to you. But I think the main gener generational difference between the parents and the children is it's something that I feel happens not just in questions of romance, which is how happy do you expect to be? Because if you think about it, I'm 47, so my parents grew up during, in, during Jim Crow. So they just had different expectations of how much happy a person should expect to have. Like when I wanted to go to school to get my MFA in creative writing, my parents thought this was a kind of a ridiculous idea. But I was like, I want to, I want to, I don't feel satisfied doing what I'm doing. I don't feel fulfilled. I want to chase my dream. I want to be a writer. And my father said to me, you know what your problem is? He said, you never had to pick cotton. He said, when you pick cotton, you don't stand out there and say, am I challenged by the cotton? Do I feel fulfilled out here? He said, you don't say, this cotton field is not my niche. He said, you just pick the goddamn cotton. He said, you young people think every day is supposed to be the weekend. The weekend is just two days. The rest of the days is for work. And I think that with these characters in marriage, it's similar. Celestial feels unhappy. Her husband is in prison. She can never see him. She wants to be an artist. She wants the life she signed up for. She wants to be happy. And her 
dad is like, what is this happy? What are you talking about? You are in this marriage and it's supposed to be work. Now go work. So I think she thinks that she's supposed to be happy. She thinks she has a right to be happy. And no one else thinks that she does. And I think it's largely generational and gendered. Gender, absolutely. Yes, the two Gs, generational and gender. <laughs> it's fascinating to hear you talk about that. You know, there's incredible suspense to this novel. And the moral dilemmas just pile up. They thicken and thicken at each phase. And I had no idea where it was going. I mean, Me either. Uh, that's what I want to ask you. <laughs> yeah, when I write novels, I don't know what's going to happen. Really? And so I like to feel breathless and stressed when I write, the same way you feel breathless and stressed when you read, like if I were to figure it out early, just like if I were to, someone spoils it for you, you don't want to keep reading. If I spoiled it for myself, I wouldn't want to keep writing it. So I didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, as soon as it became a love triangle, I was like, uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> I, so I was afraid somebody was going to get killed. Me too. Yeah, I was really, <laughs> yeah. really, really worried. Yeah. <laughs> it could have gone either way. Oh, you are making me very anxious. This is not a book to read casually. You are invested in this. <laughs> that's fascinating. So um, that sounds really difficult. Yeah, I, I would not recommend to anyone else to write a book that way. I think that's why it took me six years, because I kept following, I kept trying to find where it was going to go, and I didn't know how to end it. We have a love triangle. We have Roy, who is incarcerated, no fault of his own, and all he wants to do is come home and find a faithful woman and a clean house, right? That's all he wants. It's like he wants the same things that they wanted like in the Odyssey, and that was 60 BC. <laughs> but he suffers so much. Then we have Celestial, and she just wants, she wants everything in life that we want. She wants to be happy, she wants to pursue her art, she wants to feel value for what she does, and she wants to have a love life that she can actually participate in, which is reasonable. So I felt like, okay, and then we have Andre, who feels like, I've loved this woman since I was six months old. What do you want me to do, not love her? So I had these three people in this love triangle, and I had to figure out what, could I do for all of them? I felt equally attached to all of them, and it took me six years to work it out, but I'll tell you what I realized. I realized that I was allowing Roy to drag me through this story. Roy thinks the question of his life is how he can get back what he's lost. He feels like he's lost his, he's lost his job, he's lost his car, he's lost his house, he's lost his woman, he's lost his mother, how can he, so he's going to everyone in his life saying, what can you give me that I've lost? Can you help me? Can you help me? But what he's lost, I realize, is his citizenship. And, and by that I mean he's lost his citizenship in his own life. We are citizens of our own lives, of our communities, of our country, by what we can give back. What we, you, pay your, you join a community by giving to that community. And he didn't realize that he could give anyone anything. And I didn't realize that he could give anyone anything. And that's why I was stuck kind of on his hamster wheel because in light of what he suffered, he can never get back the material things he's lost. And I realized that it's an, what he can get back is emotional, which is realizing that he has something to offer another person. That's really profound. <laughs> 
So here we are in the American Writers Museum. You've spent six years writing a really magnificent and beautiful novel. Thank you. You're a professor of creative writing, which is hard work also. And I'm wondering if you can tell us who some of your founding writers are. Who's inspired you? I, I know you started writing as a very young girl. I wrote as a child, you know how you like little child, you write books and you staple them. Um, but I didn't know that I could be a writer. I didn't know that was something available for me to be. And I think part of it is, I honestly think part of it is because I was a girl. And as a girl, a teenage girl, I felt like the only question anyone was asking about me was, are you nice? Are you a nice girl? Are you polite? Are you well-behaved? Are you not chasing behind boys? And if you say, oh, I like to read a lot and I write things in my little journal, people think it's about your character. Not, no one ever said to me, well, what are you writing? What are you reading? Talk to me. Like, it wasn't coded as me being an intellectual. It just meant I was nice. And I think that's a grave disservice we do girls and all that. It's just the only question is, are you nice? Does your mother have to worry about you getting in trouble? But when I went to college, I went to Spelman College in Atlanta, and I met a writer. She was my teacher. Her name is Pearl Clegg. And I was, I was a kid. I was like 17, and I took a class from her. I forged my advisor's signature because underclassmen were not allowed. But I felt like I had to take this class. And I sat there, and I have to say the advisor found out and called me in, but I will be grateful to her forever because she didn't make me drop the class. And she told me later, she's like, when a kid wants to take a class that bad, she said, I just hurt your feelings, but I'll let you stay in. But Pearl took me under her wing, and she showed me what the writer's life was like and the idea of writing as responsibility and how writing brings people together as community. And I always have felt like she taught me that this was what I was called to do. And she, one time she asked me, she said, what are you thinking? And I got ready to tell her, and she says, no, write it down. And in that, she became my first audience. But other writers I adore, I am obsessed with Toni Morrison. Obsessed. I'll tell you how obsessed. I have on my desk a little bit of dirt from the town of Lorraine, Ohio, where she's from. And sometimes, I, you know, I sprinkle a little bit. And if I have a student with a really, really, really serious problem, I'll give them just a pinch. Just a little pinch of that Toni Morrison dirt. Oh, you're very generous. <laughs> Well, so, Toni Morrison, any, any other writers? Oh, there's so many. Yeah. Like, I was just saying when I was a child how much I loved Charlotte's Web when I was little. And I, was, I didn't understand how the spider wrote some pig. Because I was like, what does that mean, some pig? Some pig? And my teacher said, no, it's like this. Some pig. <laughs> and so when I was a child and I'd be nervous we had to give a little speech or something, I would just say, some pig, terrific radiant, humble, all the words that Charlotte said to Wilbur to like buck myself up. So I've just always loved books, but also I read a lot of not terribly intellectual things as well. I read a lot of murder mysteries because even though, you know, I consider myself a serious writer, whatever that means, I like a, I like a story that moves. Like this is super plotty. It, yes, this moves. Yeah, I this mean, this really is. I'll have a mistaken identity or a coincidence in a minute. I don't care because <laughs> I want. I always assume that your reader isn't necessarily committed to finishing the book. Like you have to give the reader an incentive to turn pages. Well, and you know, 
story is what we want. So there's ideas. I mean, you started out thinking about mass incarceration, but you didn't want to write a report. You're not a sociologist. You're not a journalist. So all that, but I can feel that pulsing beneath this. But it's deep down, and what you give us, I mean, the closing third of this book is absolutely riveting. And every chapter, something else is changing, something else is happening. It's really hard to do that. But it's never just surface. They're, they're dealing with really profound dilemmas. Well, I feel like a lot of times when people get ready to write, they're like, well, how do I work in mass incarceration? How do I, like someone said, was it hard for you to match a love triangle and mass incarceration? But I was like, no, because that's real life. Like in real life, we deal with things on different levels, right? Like Roy is wondering, you know, the question on the surface is like, who is Celestial going to pick, Roy or Andre? But then on another level, it's a question about marriage itself. Like, what is commitment? How is commitment work? How is the expectation of commitment different from men than from women? You know, this idea, this assumption of chastity, does it go both ways? And then the question of wrongful incarceration or mass incarceration I mean, there are 4 million people in prison in the United States right now. And that means that. In every room, a room this size, there are people related to people in prison, the people who love people in prison, and it isn't a separate issue in their life. It's woven through their lives. So if your novel mimics real life, it'll do things on different levels. That's beautifully put. That's what fiction does. That's exactly Sometimes. what it does. Yeah, when it, when it works, <laughs> the good fiction. So I'll ask you one more question because I'm sure we have questions in the audience. Um, you were this American Mar and American Marriage was selected by Oprah Winfrey for her book club. This is true. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. So, um, having watched other writers um, experience this, I think this kind of turned your life upside down a little bit. Um, it turned my life not really upside down because I've written other novels before and I do feel really grateful that it didn't happen at the start of my career where I had kind of already set in my mind what my goals are and what is important to me. I always have centered my writing around readers. And I think this is because earlier in my career, um, people, very, people don't realize this, but An American Marriage is my fourth novel and it was my first novel to even be reviewed by the New York Times. So I felt kind of earlier in my career excluded from literary power in a way. And so if I was going to keep being a writer, I had to ask myself, okay, then why am I writing? It's obviously, I can't be writing for the New York Times. I can't be writing for prize committees because they're not paying attention to me. And I concentrated in my heart on my readers. And I was really fortunate in mentors. When I was a little baby writer, um, I got a letter from Nikki Giovanni, and she invited me to come to her house. And she was going to talk to me about being a writer. And so I packed my little overnight bag, and I stayed at her house. And she just talked to me, and she said to me, take care of your readers. She said, the women who are reading your book now, they will take, if you take care of them, they will take care of you for the rest of your life. She said, these women will come to your funeral. That's what she so I was always focused on my readers and measuring my success that way. Um, so, but I was driving my car, minding my business like an ordinary person, and I had a block call come through. And I answer block calls. <laughs> because I'm nosy. <laughs> I mean, that person blocked that call for a reason. And I wanna know what it is. 
So I said, hello? And on the other line, she said, hi, this is Oprah. <laughs> and her voice is very distinct. So I put on the hazard lights and I pulled over. And you know, I'm born and raised in Georgia, so I said what any Southerner would say. I said, ma'am? <laughs> and she said she wanted to use the book for her book club selection. And what did I think about that? I said, I, I think that would be very nice, thank you. <laughs> but you know what it made me think about, really? That because she's Oprah, that she was lending her good name to my project that to lend someone your name is such a giant offering. And it, I was aware of it because it's Oprah, but I realized how many people throughout my life have lent me their good name. Like, you know, when I wanted to go to college, my high school counselor, she lent her good name to my application. You know, when you want to get an apartment, someone has to lend their good name. So it, I was aware of the weight of it because it was Oprah, but it made me realize that this is a kindness and a generosity that we give to each other, you know, every day. It's a really good perspective. <laughs> so thank you all very much. Thank you, Tayari. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Writers Museum podcast. Tune in next week for a conversation with screenwriter and comics writer J. Michael Straczynski about his recent memoir, Becoming Superman. Now go, be inspired, and find the mind of a writer in yourself.